moment, I think explains and kind of helps to introduce this series that we're in, is that when he said this to my daughter, daddy wasn't a person. Daddy was just a picture on the dresser and some stories that mom told her. The story about Pastor Albrecht and his daughter got me thinking. I believe that this is unfortunately how many of us could characterize the depth of our personal relationship and our relationship with Christ and the relational knowledge that we have with the Son of God. We worship him in spirit and in truth, hopefully, in church. We say that we walk with him. The songs say that he walks with us and he talks with us. says that he's an intimate and a personal savior. But how much do we honestly know the Jesus of the Bible? Or how much do we just say we have formed a picture of who Jesus is and we put him on a dresser somewhere and we just know some stories about him and that's all we really know about Christ? See, to many people, even in the church, he's not a real person. Jesus is just a picture that we glance at sometimes, and he's a series of stories that we've learned along the way, or he's a series of sermons that we've heard along the way. And when it comes to Jesus, sometimes that picture that's painted is not even a real picture. You see, there's pictures of Jesus everywhere. Uh, You've probably seen pictures of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Jesus at times, there's pictures of an, Af- of, of, a, of an African Jesus. There's even a pictures of, of an Asian Jesus as cultures try to relate Christ to their culture. But all these pictures, what it does is it teaches us what we do. And it's a problem that we have sometimes in our relationship. And I think it plants this like mountain in the way of our true understanding of who Christ is. And then it also, it, it also trickles down into us obeying what he said in the way he had intended. Is that we try to put Jesus in this little frame that we can understand. And we try to put Jesus in this little frame or this box that we want him to be in and that we want him to fit in. Because everybody wants to look at Jesus as as someone who is just their friend. But Jesus is not just our friend that sticks closer than than our brother. He is the Lord and Savior of the world. He is King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the bread of life. He's the great shepherd. He's the, the great door to salvation. He is more than just a buddy that hangs out out with us and and gives us a good time. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He is our Lord and Master. And one day the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the Jesus that we worship. You see a lot of times what we do we're prone to just draw this picture or this character of caricature of Jesus. And we want to put him in it so that it fits nice and neat within our lives rather than following Jesus. See, Jesus is not an accessory that we add to our lives, like a watch or a ring. Jesus is the source of life. Some of you, and you know you have, you've seen the movie Talladega Nights with Will, starring Will Ferrell, right? And Ricky Bobby, when he sits down at the dinner table, and he begins to pray, and he says something like this, Dear sweet eight-pound Lord baby Jesus in a gold fleece diaper laying in a manger. And he starts praying on and on and on. And so the family finally stops, his wife finally stops and says, Ricky, Jesus did grow up. He's a man now. And then the grandfather says, not only is he a man, he's like in heaven. He's the king again. He's like, look, I pr- you can pray to the bearded Jesus all you want, who are the grown up bearded Jesus. I want to pray to the baby Jesus. That's just what I want to do. And I think that explains kind of where we are sometimes in our culture. We just want to picture Jesus how we want him to be. But the thing about accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior means we accept him as our Lord and Savior. Not just pieces of him that sound good, but the whole thing. The whole thing and everything he said and everything that he is. Because I believe we've settled for nice, neat little pictures 
or representations of Jesus to create a Jesus that we want and who fits into our lives rather than the Lord and Savior that we are to surrender to completely, take up our cross and follow daily. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at trying to get to know the Jesus of the Bible. And I don't want to say that in a condescending way, like you're not genuinely trying to follow the Jesus of the Bible. But I want you to stop just for a minute, because here's where it happened for me. About two years ago, I believe it was two years ago, I started I started a a sermon series just preaching verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount at LBT. And I did not realize just how much that was going to change and revolutionize my personal relationship with Christ. Because I began to study and as I began to read and as I began to just just spend my entire existence in the Sermon on the Mount, I realized that I had some notions about Christ and I had developed some ideas about Jesus that did not line up with what he was saying and the way he was presented there. And it started this, this kind of this journey where I began to, to study and to look at through the Gospels, just what Jesus said and kind of tear away all the things that I kind of had in my mind and, and kind of all the pictures. I just decided I'm going to throw out all the picture frames. I'm going to do all that throughout all the boxes and, say, and just say, Jesus, show me who you are. Help me know the Jesus of the Bible. And I'm not saying I've arrived because every day he's showing me something new. But for me, it was a personal journey in understanding that I had made Jesus too small. And understand this, any time you try to pit, pick, put Jesus in a picture frame, you've made him too small because he is limitless. He is limitless and there are no boundaries to him. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. We're living in a world today that knows Jesus less than it ever has. Biblical engagement is lower than it ever has been. People are walking away from the faith when they when they come of age, kids growing up in church and walking away saying, it just doesn't have any practical relevance in my life anymore. And I believe the reason for that is, is because we believe that Jesus is someone and Christianity and our faith is someone or something that we have to make fit into the world's culture and into our ideas of the way the world works. But the way the Bible is presented and the way the Bible is intended to be is this is the filter through which you engage the world, not the other way around. And what many times what we're doing is we're engaging this book through the filter of what everything else says to do. But we got to turn that upside down. We've got to make this the authority, this the filter through which we look at everything else. And so as the church, it's imperative that if we live in a world that knows Jesus less and less, we as the church need to begin to know him more and more. As believers in the church, we need to raise the literacy level and the knowledge level of Jesus Christ if we're to see our, our, our communities, our workplaces, our homes, anything impacted for him. See, if I were to give a quiz this morning on what you know about Jesus, probably most of you would pass it. Just a general knowledge quiz, like what city was he born in? Somebody shout it out. Born in Bethlehem, what was his hometown? We know that it was Nazareth. What, what tribe was he from in the Jewish culture? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, yes. Where is he now? The Bible tells us where he's at now. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us. Uh, how many names are used of Christ? Can you identify as the names of Christ? See, you may know all those facts and figures, but just knowing the facts and figures is not enough. Knowing facts and figures about someone is not a substitute for actually knowing someone. I can know all the statistics and all the stats of my favorite baseball player, Anthony Rizzo. Actually, it's a hybrid, Brizzo. It's actually Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo, the power tandem couple of the Chicago Cubs, man. We're going to see another World Series victory 
in another 108 years. All right, it's going to be awesome. But I can know all the stats and everything, but it's never going to replace actually spending time with him, which I probably never will be able to do. Knowing about someone is not a substitute for actually knowing them intimately. And the only way that we get to know Jesus Christ is to get into the word, is to get into the word and look at that. So let's look at this this morning in John chapter one. And for the next four weeks, we're going to actually be just in John chapter one. And then after that, we're going to go to the book of Colossians and begin to pre- I'm going to go all the way through the book of Colossians, which focuses on the preeminence of Jesus, that Jesus is number one. There are no equals. There are no there are no substitutes. And so we're going to be looking at Jesus for quite a while, which hopefully that's OK to do in the church as well. So beginning in John chapter one, it says this in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So what does that tell us about Christ? He made everything. He's part of he's part of the the creative team who created the world in him was life and the light was the light of men and the light shined in the darkness and the darkness comprehended at night. There was a man that was sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world, what does it say? The world knew him not. The world did not know him. He was here, he was around, yet many people just missed it. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him... To them did he give the power to become the sons of God, even unto them that believe on his name, or the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld, or we looked upon his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. Let's stop right there. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would illuminate us to, your tr- to the truth of God's word. I pray that you would captivate us and I pray that you would speak to us loud and clear. Help us to see you, Lord Jesus, for who you really are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So who is Jesus? This Jesus that we see in the book of John. John the Baptist. There's two Johns that we need to keep in, in, in mind here as we look through this chapter. John the Beloved is the disciple John who wrote the book John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he also wrote the book of Revelation that we see in Scripture as well. It talks about another man named John who was sent before Jesus. That is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a guy, he was like... Um, he was like this ultimate survivalist, all right? He was out there. The Bible said he wore, you know, he wore wild skins and he ate locusts and he ate wild honey and all this stuff. So he was like this survivalist kind of guy. To look at him, you'd have been scared to death, but you definitely wanted to hear what the guy had to say. I mean, could you imagine a guy sitting there preaching to you and he's got like bug legs hanging out of his mouth and, you know, honey's all caked up in his beard and everything. But he began to preach and he had one specific message. He said, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was drawing, drawing in hand. He said, I baptize in water, but Jesus will baptize in the spirit. So a couple of things that we have to understand as we're looking at it, when we talk, we're talking about a couple of different Johns uh, here in, in this passage This morning, I want to look at three things. Next week, we'll look at one thing really closely. And the following week, we'll look at a couple of more as well. 
But this morning, I want to look at three things that John chapter 1 gives us to tell us, to show us, to get a, to get a full-fledged picture, an actual picture of Jesus Christ. Not a picture that we've created or that we've drawn, but a picture that he wants us to see and what he wants us to get. The first thing that we have to understand about Jesus Christ that makes him different from anyone else is that he is eternal. Jesus is eternal, meaning he has always existed and he is always going to exist. There is no one who's going to stop his existence. There's no one who began his existence because Jesus is eternal, just like God, because Jesus is God as much as God is God as well. Here's what it says in the very first verse. Let's look at it again. It says, in the beginning was what? Was the word. And that word, word there is capitalized, which means that it's a name. It's one of the names for Christ. So already, as we're trying to get an understanding of who Jesus is, here's who Jesus is. He is the eternal word of God. Every word that Jesus uttered qualified as holy scripture. Every word. I often think sometimes if Jesus had a Twitter account, that means like you've just, you know, you got your digital Bibles. Every word would have been like some new thing, some new biblical phrase or passage that he would say. Every word that came out of his mouth qualified as scripture because it was God speaking. And that that was an eternal and holy word. So Jesus is eternal. It indicates a name rather than an object. He was the very mouthpiece of God. Every word that proceeded out of his mouth was words from God. And the Bible says this, that in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Meaning that Jesus is God himself as well. I know the Bible says it's the son of God. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But he is the son of God, but he is God as well because of the way the Trinity works. And so Jesus is the Son of God, he's the Word of God, which means he was in existence before the world began. And he'll be here long after the world ends. And he'll be in heaven glorified for all of eternity, there will be no end to it. John the Baptist said that he was eternal as well. This is what he said in verse number 15. And I'm going to read this in the the Christian Standard Bible translation. He said this in verse number 15. This was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. So John the Baptist was telling us that his eternal nature, because even though Jesus was born physically six months after John the Baptist, Jesus was around before John the Baptist. He's been around all along. And that's something that means that should mean something to us. Here's what it should tell us first and foremost. What does it matter that Jesus is eternal? You may be sitting there thinking, what? all right, yeah, he's eternal. I already knew that. This is nothing new. But let me ask you this. What does it mean? What effect does that have on my life? What effect does that have on my daily life and my daily existence? And what does it have? What effect does it have on my eternity as well? The fact that Jesus is eternal. Well, first of all, I think it means this. The fact that he is eternal, his eternality means that you and I, we can't box him in. We can't frame him in no matter how much we want to. Because he is eternal, he has no beginning and he has no ending. You can't find, you can't find a frame big enough to put Jesus inside of. He's bigger than you want to make him in your life. And he also, because he is Lord and Savior, he has more authority than you want to give him in our lives as well. And he has a more powerful presence than we often give him credit for having in our lives as well. We can't frame him in. He's been here before us, and he's going to be here long after us as well. And what I find interesting, every generation and every culture tries to define Jesus a way they can understand him. 
and a way that they can. And, and there's nothing wrong with trying to get to know Christ. But understand this. You can spend your entire life. Our generations will live and die and will never be able to reach the end of Jesus ever because he is eternal. In the book of first John, chapter five, verse 20, he says this. We know that the son of God has come and he has given us an understanding that we may know him. That is true, that we are in him. That is true. Even in the son, the son of Christ, in the son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God. And this is eternal life, eternal life through him. So what does it matter that Jesus is eternal? Number one, I can't put him in a box. He's bigger than me, and that's for our benefit. The second thing, the second reason is I believe it, it matters because it gives us eternal life. Jesus said, if you follow me, I will give you eternal life. What good is it if I promise to give you something that I can't be around to provide? You ever thought about that? Jesus says, I'll give you eternal life. You'll live eternally. But what good is it if he's still in a tomb? How much can you believe him if he's still in the tomb? No, he's alive today. He's the resurrected king, just like we sang. And because of that, he is resurrecting us every day. We are being made new. We are being made more alive in him through a relationship with him as well. We make light of eternal life. We think eternal life is just one of those things that I secure for when I die and I need it. But you need it today, too. Not just on the last day that you draw your breath. You need his eternality today, his eternal nature as well. It matters as well for Jesus to be present in our lives. Because he always has been and always is, it means he's always there. There's never a moment when he's going to say, oh man, I'm sorry, I was checked out of the office. Or I'm sorry, I, I kind of turned my back there for a minute. He is eternal. He is always going to be there. That's why he's the friend that sits closer than a brother. And it matters because Jesus is not just a dead historical figure. Because Jesus is eternal. He is available for a real and genuine relationship. I love history. I love to study about people, uh, study about people of the past. I like to read about them right now. I'm reading through the longest biography I've ever read in my life on a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Nazi Germany. But I'm telling you, man, you can read about all of these historical figures, but they all have one thing in common today. Their history. Jesus is a historical figure. Don't get me wrong. He changed history. History revolves around him. But he's not just history. He is present today. And he is also our future. There is no other being in the universe that has ever lived or ever will live that will ever be able to have that. And that will ever be able to provide that kind of relationship with you. He is eternal. And because of that, you can have eternity. Because of that, you can have a relationship as well. Because he is present and he is living and he is active and he is working in your life right now. You may not even realize it or give him credit, but he is working in your life right now. You may not agree with how he's working, but he's still working in your life. So Jesus is eternal. The second thing is, is that Jesus is grace and truth as well. So Jesus is eternal, but Jesus is also grace and truth. I didn't just say he offers grace or that he told the truth. Jesus is the embodiment of grace and he is the embodiment of truth. Well, what is grace? Grace is, if you use that old acrostic, you know, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Meaning that when Jesus provided salvation, that was grace. He provided the riches of eternal life at Christ's expense when he died on the cross. But here's what grace really just kind of boils down to. Grace is getting something good that I don't deserve. And for each one of us who know Christ as our Savior, who've been saved, we can say, that's grace. I did not deserve salvation. 
I don't know about you, I can, I can venture off into the arrogance sometimes, and I can begin to think about myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I was pretty good at that, man. I, you know, I, I, I was, I'm, I'm something. I'm somebody. I'm, I'm special. God really lucked out the day I trusted him, right? We sometimes forget just how low we really were in our trespasses and our sins. You can't get lower than dead, and that's what scripture says. We were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But because of Jesus Christ, he provided grace, unmerited favor that we did not deserve, the good that we did not deserve. Here's what it says in verse number 14 again. And this is this verse. Memorize it. Study it. Do whatever you need to do to get this one. It says in verse number 14, it says, and we beheld his glory. I'm reading the second half of it. Full of grace and truth. And of his fullness have all of we received and grace for grace for the law in verse number 16 in verse number 17. Now for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by who came by Jesus Christ. So he is the embodiment of grace and truth. What that means is, is without Jesus, grace and truth do not exist. He's the source. If you've ever had grace shown to you in your life, even from another person, the source is Jesus Christ. He is the originator. He's the source of that. He's also the source of life. He's the source of joy and peace and all those things. But he is the source of grace and he is the source of truth as well. The fact that both grace and truth, Jesus is both grace and truth, means that he's the answer to the hard truth of where we are in our sin. We love truth, right? We always want people to tell us the truth. Until the truth stings. And then we don't want to hear the truth. Then we want to try to say, oh, that's not true. That couldn't be true because it hurts. Here's the hard truth. Jesus is grace and truth. But here's what he had to let us know. See, truth says that we deserve hell because of our sins. Truth says we deserve to remain dead in our trespasses and sins and eternally separated from God. Here's what grace says. Grace says you're not going to get what you deserve, but something that you don't deserve. I'm going to die on the cross to redeem you from your sins so that you can have what you don't deserve, eternal life. Here's what truth says. Truth says if you sin, you die, and the wages of sin is death. But grace says I will die in your place. I'll take your wages for you. Jesus fulfilled both grace and truth by dying in our place. You see, here's the truth. We're in serious trouble without him. But here's grace. Jesus said I, am not, I, I have no reason to redeem you other than that I choose to out of my love for you. That's truth and grace working together in the person of Jesus Christ. Truth says I deserve hell. Truth says I deserve death. I love what, I love what Warren Wearsby, and he just recently went to heaven to be with Jesus, but I love his commentaries. He said this about grace and truth. Grace without truth would be deceitful, but truth without grace would be condemning. Get that. Grace without truth would be deceitful. Grace without telling us where we were before Christ would just be kind of a lie. But truth without grace would be condemning. What if Jesus just told the truth? You're going to die in your sin. And withheld grace. We're not meeting here today if that's the case. We have nothing to worship. We have nothing to praise. We should just live our lives and try to get the best out of it before it all goes to pot. But because of, tr- of grace and truth, we have a wonderful story to tell. And that story is called the gospel. So he is grace and truth. We see it kind of play out in the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. 
Remember that story from the Gospels? Uh, what's interesting is the story is just called the woman who was caught in adultery. Although the last time I, the, my understanding of adultery is if you're going to commit adultery, it involves, you know, two people. But it was only the woman who was caught in the act. Where'd the man go? Why weren't they pressing on the man at all? Right? That's a whole nother message later on. This woman was ripped out of, of her place of secrecy in the middle of being caught in adultery and brought out because the law said if you're caught in adultery, you are to be stoned to death. And all these people had the stones in their hands. And what happens? Jesus comes into the middle of them and the Pharisees ask him and says, what do we do with her? The law says she should die. What do you say? And he just got down in the sand and began riding in the sand. And a lot of scholars believe, and I, I, I want to believe this. There's no proof, but I believe that he was just riding down each one of their sins in the sand. And he said, well, let, who, let those among you without any sin cast the first stone. And one by one, those rocks began to hit the sand and they began to walk away. That's grace. Because what did the woman deserve because of the law? The woman deserved death. But God said through his grace, I will give you what you don't deserve. I will give you pardon. Now we see grace and truth together in the story. Grace was in your sins are forgiven you. But truth was in go and sin no more. See, he didn't just say, hey, it's okay that you committed adultery. Go on and enjoy your day. I took care of those big bad guys. They won't be bothering you anymore. What he said was go and sin no more. He said repent and change. And that's what his grace and truth compels us to do. Jesus is not someone just sitting up in heaven saying, I'm going to make all your bad stuff go away. And if that's the way we've pictured Jesus, that when we stand before heaven, his blood is just going to cover up all of our sins so that God can't see them. You haven't got a full picture of what salvation really is. It's not only being forgiven, but it's also repentance set into a life where I no longer want to sin because I've been so radically changed by the grace of God. Jesus doesn't just cause God to turn his head and say, oh, it's all, everything's all right. Jesus eradicates our sin and gives us his nature. And that's what he did with the woman caught in adultery. There was grace. The Bible says grace for grace. In the original translation, what that means is grace on top of grace on top of grace, meaning you can't run out of it. You may be sitting there thinking, yeah, that's wonderful for that woman caught in adultery. But not only maybe I've maybe I've committed adultery, but not, I've committed murder. I've done all. I'm not confessing anything, by the way. I'm just saying there might be somebody who said, man, that, that's that's just one sin, man. I've got way more sins than that. There's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I've used this illustration before to explain this, but just around the corner, actually, from where we are now, there's this there's this hamburger joint called Five Guys. You ever been there before? Ever been there? Five Guys got some good burgers. I haven't been there in a long time, but because if I ate there long enough, I'd be big as Five Guys. But the thing is, if you've ever gotten their fries before, when you order fries, they put them in the thing, but then they pour extra in the bottom. OK, so it overflows the container of fries. And then you have just as much, if not more, sitting in the bottom of the bag. I mean, you go to McDonald's, you get one or two fries sitting around the bottom. But man, at Five Guys, you got more, more fries at the bottom of the bag than you do in the container. That's grace upon grace, you know? That's what I'm saying. Grace upon grace. It overflows and there's more to come. Some of y'all are going to Five Guys for lunch. I'll see you there, all right? All right? I'm telling you, it's grace fries, man. That's just, they give grace fries over there. That's what they do, all right? But that's the, the picture of the grace that we get in Jesus Christ. Meaning that I have grace. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve because every day we wake up that we have the opportunity to have a relationship with them, that's grace. 
every day. And then lastly, as we move to the close, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is grace and truth. And lastly, Jesus reveals God to man. And this is probably one of the things that we, that we oftentimes struggle with because we can't picture God a whole lot. And we can't, this is why we struggle to find the pictures. But here's why Jesus came. Here's one of the reasons that Jesus came. Not only so that he could save the lost, but so that he could reveal God to man. In verse number 18, here's what it said. Let's look back at there again. He says, no man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So what that says is for almost 4,000 years from the beginning of creation until the, until Jesus came, no one had seen God. They'd seen manifestations of him in the form of a cloud and a fire when the Israelites were going through and a burning bush for Moses. They'd seen manifestations of him, but they'd never seen the form of him until Jesus came. And he wrapped himself in human flesh because we are created in the image of God and he wrapped himself in flesh and he walked the earth for 33 and a half years. And while he was doing that, God was on earth, embodied in a man. And it's not so much about how big his nose was or his ears were, or what color his hair was, whether it was short or long, whether he had a beard or he didn't, whether he was buff or whatever. It's more about the fact that God condescended himself to a man and wrapped himself in flesh for our good. And our good was for salvation, but also so that the mystery of God so that God could be drawn closer to man. Now what we see, the picture that we get of God is in this completed work called the Bible. That's the image of God that we get today. But John said that Jesus, the Son of God, has declared him. For 33 years, humanity got a glimpse of God in the form of Jesus Christ. And here's what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians. Colossians 1, verse number 14. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. You see, because he became man, he then bled. And blood has always been the currency of forgiveness. Blood, all the way through the Old Testament, for sin to be forgiven, blood had to be shed in the temple. And so when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, that was the currency of our forgiveness. He had to put on flesh so he could bleed for our sins. So that there would be a grotesque picture of just how bad our sin really was. And the pain and the torment and the nastiness of what had to take place so that sin could be forgiven. Picturing God himself on a cross, suffering and bleeding and dying, not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it and he took that in our stead. We have redemption through his blood. And the Bible also said, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, Jesus is the image, the very express image of the invisible God. You want to picture God, picture Jesus. You want to know God more, get in the Gospels and see Jesus. That will bring you towards, towards God. Jesus is God made flesh. Consider what a condescension it was for God to put on flesh, to come down here. And then he not only chose to do that, he chose, even though he's a king, he chose to be born in a stable, laid in a pig trough. Which if you know much about Jewish dietary laws, that was even just condescending to their Jewish ways to even be in an unclean trough like that. All of those things taking, taking place. He did all of that to be lowly so that man could approach him. 
Because what the picture we get of God throughout the Old Testament is God is way up here and we're way down here. God is huge and we are like this. But when Jesus came, we get the idea of, yes, God is big. Jesus is still just as big, but I'm willing to step down. And I'm willing to, for a little while, become your size for your good and for your redemption. That's what Jesus does for us. Because we can't grasp God without knowing Jesus. We just can't do it. And that's why so many people struggle when they don't come to God through Jesus Christ. They can't understand it. If Jesus is not there, the pathway to God is cut off. So Jesus is the image of God. He's God made in flesh. And in verse number 14 at the beginning, it says, The word Jesus, God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says, And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Because God became flesh, we're able to identify with our creator. He became the very image of the invisible God. So if we close our eyes and we picture Jesus and we, we picture him doing what he did or frames or, or, or pieces from movies begin to play through our head, it helps to us to understand God. But don't just reduce Jesus to a picture. Get in the word and really get to know the word that was with God. I want to challenge you as we get ready to close out this morning. I want to challenge you to do something while we're in this series for the next four weeks. Make a commitment. Say, I'm going to read. I'm going to really get to know Jesus. I'm going to just, I'm going to get into the Gospels and I'm going to stay there. I'm going to read that. If you want to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels, where the red letters are in your Bible, get in there. That's the words of Jesus. That's the ministry of Jesus. But just read it. Read it again for the first time. If you're so used to, if you've read through it so many times that you're just, it just becomes, your brain goes on autopilot when you do that, because I sometimes do that, get an audiobook version of the Bible and listen to it or something. Whatever it does, it helps you hear it or read it or see it or take it in again for the first time. If you say, man, I don't know if I can read through all four books, just read through the book of John. Start with John 1. That's where we're going to be at for the next few weeks. Get in there and let it just, let just get to know Jesus. That's a step I want to, I want to encourage you to do as a church. Let's do that together and really get to know Christ through this series. But as I close out, I want you to think about this. Of all the things I've tried to do to explain Christ, every explanation I get only gives you a piece of the puzzle. Jesus is so much more than that. And when Jesus became flesh, what he did was, he says, I'm going to make myself relatable to you. But understand that as much as we can relate to him, he exceeds that. Because not only was he man, but he was God. And matter of fact, the best thing that God ever did for mankind was that when he became man, he still stayed God. That he is still God. Which means that he's still over your life. He can still see what's coming in your life. He can be that friend that not only sticks closer than a brother, but he can be that savior as well. That holds on to you. And so wherever you are, what position you're in, Jesus can exceed and be different and unique to anyone or anything you've ever known. And it can change your life. So, for instance, for the chemist, he turns water into wine. For the biologist, he was born without normal conception. It blows away their understanding of what humanity really is. 
To the physicist, he disproves the law of gravity when he ascends into heaven. To the economist, he disproves the law of diminishing return when he feeds 5,000 men and more women and kids with two fish and five loaves of bread. To the, to the doctor, he cured the sick and blind without administering a single dose of drugs. To the historian, he's the beginning and the end. To the person in government, he said that he shall be called the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace. To the person who is invested in religion, he said that no one comes to the Father except Except through him. Jesus had no servants, yet they called him master. He had no degree, yet they called him teacher. He had no medicines, yet they called him healer. He had no army, yet the kings feared him. He won no military battles, yet he conquered the world. He committed no crime, yet they crucified him. And he was buried in a tomb, yet he lives today. That's Jesus. Not only did he lower himself to be a man, but he obliterates any expectation that we may have. That's why we can't just settle for saying, well, I prefer to look at Jesus like this. No, what he wants us to do is look at Jesus for who he is and follow him. And the best way for you to understand Jesus is through a personal relationship with him. And that's my question as we close this morning. Do you know him? Do you have that personal relationship with him? Has there been a moment when you called out to Jesus and said, Lord, I need you. I don't just want to know about you. I want to know you. 